In Latin, renovo means to renew, restore, or revive. This is the show where we explore the miraculous nature of the mundane as we look at one part of the Catholic tradition to help you engage more fully in the practice of faith. Past episodes are available at renovopodcast.com. I'm Doug Tuke, and today we got to do this show. We have to do this. Ash Wednesday and Lent. This is a big deal. And I, I got to tell you, this is one of those things where all of our blessed, beautiful, non-practicing Catholics still somehow make Ash Wednesday like this huge moment. In fact, I have seen people who do not go to Mass ever kind of show up on Ash Wednesday and just get those ashes. And then they bolt before they even receive the precious body. (laughs) So this is like a truly, like a deeply ingrained reality in Catholic culture. But let me tell you, friends, listen, there is a reason for it. And we need to know the reason so we can place it over the context of the season, which is Lent, our walk into the desert. We did our last show on the uh, Operation Rice Bowl, CRS Rice Bowl, uh, which is a great kickoff to to the Lenten journey. But this one is really about spiritual healing. So let's dig in. What is Ash Wednesday? So so it marks the start of the season, right? 40-day period of fasting and abstinence. That's what we call Lent. Um, it's also known as the Day of Ashes. So it's it's called that because on that day, the church faithfully basically have their foreheads marked with ashes in the shape of of a cross. Okay. Now the day, excuse me, the name day of ashes, um, it comes from Dies Cinerum, okay, in the Roman Missal, and it's found in the earliest existing copies of the Gregorian Sacramentary. So this is not a new concept. It's been around for a long time. In fact, it probably originated by Roman Catholics somewhere in the 6th century. So the exact day, of course, is not known. And the custom of marking the head with ashes on this day is said to have basically started during the papacy of Gregory the Great. So that's late 6th century, early 7th century. Now, you know this from from kind of hearing the word, but in the Old Testament, ashes were essentially found to have been used for two major purposes. Okay, so one is like a sign of humility and mortality, like from ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And then the other was a sign of sorrow and repentance. Think about like Nineveh, when Jonah preaches to them, they cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, The Christian connotation for ashes in the liturgy of Ash Wednesday has also been taken from this kind of Old Testament biblical custom. So receiving ashes on the head as a reminder of like our mortality and a sign of sorrow for sin was practiced way back in like the Anglo-Saxon church in the 10th century. Okay, and it was made universal throughout the Western church at the Synod of Benevento in 1091. So even though it was like a local custom, it became a major custom in the church. Now, originally, the use of ashes to be a sign of penance was a matter of like total private devotion. That was not something that you would do publicly. Now, it became part of the official rite for reconciling public penitence. So people that wanted to re-enter into the church because of uh, forgiveness of their sins would cover themselves in ashes. Now, in this context... Ashes on the forehead served as basically like um, like a motive for fellow Christians to pray for the returning sinner and to basically feel sympathy for them. Okay, still later, the use of ashes passed into its present rite of beginning the penitential season. Okay, so this is amazing. So it comes from first of all, it's kind of a private practice. Then it becomes a public practice in the Christian faith because we want to regather those that have sinned. So you would publicly let people know that their sin. We did a we did a show on confession and how it used to be kind of once in a life and it was very, very public. That's what they're talking about here. This is a huge deal. Okay, now there can be no doubt 
that the custom of, of basically giving the ashes to all the faithful arose from like a, a devotional imitation of the practice observed in the case of public penitence. That's kind of cool. So putting a cross or a mark on the forehead was basically imitating the spiritual mark or seal that's put on a Christian in baptism. So there was a sense of like community solidarity with the sinner. Okay. Like it's not just you, it's all of us need to remember our sin, especially in this special season. So when this newly born, when a newly born Christian is delivered from slavery to sin and the devil during baptism and made a slave of righteousness in Christ, look at Romans 6, 3 through 18, a cross is placed on their forehead of oil, a permanent symbol, an indelible mark. This Ash Wednesday mark really kind of says we've fallen away from that. Let's make sure we return to it. Okay. It can also be kind of held um like as an adoption of the way like righteousness is described in the book of Revelation. Here's why I'm going there. We we come to know about kind of like how God wants his servants to behave in John's revelation and the reference to the sealing of servants of God for protection in Revelation is also an allusion to a message in Ezekiel. So Ezekiel sees kind of a a sealing of the servants of God for their protection. Here it is, Ezekiel 9. He says, And the Lord said to him, one of the four cherubim, go through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark, literally a towel, upon the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and smite. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Slay old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but Touch no one upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Like this mark, this notion of being sealed for purposes of salvation is deeply, deeply rooted in our Israelite history. Okay. Now the Tao, T-A-U, Tao, is one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And in ancient script, it looked like the Greek letter Chi or from Kairos. Okay which happens to be two crossed lines like an X. And it appears to be the first letter in the word Christ, the K in Christ, in the Greek Christos, okay? So the Jewish rabbis commented on the connection between Tau and Kai, and this is totally where the mark of Revelation has basically uh, kind of surfaced in our history. It's what they had in mind when the servants of God are sealed in it. Okay. So the early church fathers, right? Remember those church fathers? We're going to do a whole series of shows on the church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, all those guys. The church fathers seized on this kind of Tau, Chi, Cross, Christos connection, and they talked about it in their homilies, seeing in Ezekiel kind of a prophetic foreshadowing of this sealing of Christians as servants of Christ. So it also, it's part of the background to the Catholic practice of even making the sign of the cross, literally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which in the early centuries, as is totally documented by the second century on, okay, was practiced by using one's thumb to furrow one's brow or to push into the forehead a small sign of the cross, like Catholics do today, at the reading of the Gospels during Mass. Lord, be on my mind and my lips and in my heart. Awesome. So that's what it is. Public display of of your sinfulness and and your desire to be redeemed. So listen, I just, just a special message. All of you that are going out to get your ashes or you got them on Wednesday, don't let that be the end of your Lenten journey, the beginning and the end. Like the whole point of the journey is a public statement of a desire to be healed. So drag your butt to mass and make sure that there's some sort of a daily commitment to this continued profession of faith, okay? That's what the church is for. That's why we're here. Let's do it together. Let's go out in the desert, 
together. So that sets up what this Lenten thing is. Okay, Lent is designed for prayer, penance, and sacrifice and good works, doing good stuff, okay? And it's a preparation of the celebration of Easter, the greatest celebration, the greatest holiday in the church, period. Nothing usurps this. The resurrection is the good news. This is leading to the good news, all right? So in this desire to renew kind of the liturgical practices of the church, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy of the Vatican Council II says The two elements which are especially characteristic of Lent, the recalling of baptism or the preparation for it, and penance should be given greater emphasis in the liturgy and in liturgical catechesis. It is by means of them that the church prepares the faithful for the celebration of Easter while they hear God's word more frequently and devote more time to prayer. So the word Lent itself is derived from this Anglo-Saxon word lengthen, L-E-N-C-T-E-N, which means spring. I love that. New life, right? And lengthenide or lengthentide, which literally means not only springtide, but also was the word for March. That's where the that's where it comes from. Now you know it's not just about Mars, okay? That's where it comes from. The the month of March, the month in which the majority of Lent falls. It's a celebration of that month. You thought it was just about the final four in the NCAA tournament. No, friends, it's about spring. Now you know. And Jesus. woo The dispute, okay, um, uh, Eusebius says in his history of the church, the, the dispute is not only about the day, but also about the actual character of fasting. Here's what he's talking about. So since the earliest times of the church, there's evidence of some kind of Lenten preparation for Easter. For instance, like St. Irenaeus in the in 203, third century, wrote to Pope St. Victor I, commenting on the celebration of Easter and the differences between practices in the East and West. So there was this very targeted day celebration of the resurrection. So Eusebius says... Uh, Some think that they ought to fast for one day, some for two, others for still more. Some make their day last 40 hours on end. Such variation in the observance did not originate in our own day, but very much earlier in the time of our forefathers. So this is an ancient historian referencing the ancient practice of Lent. How cool is that? So when Rufinus, another historian, Translates this passage from Greek into Latin, the punctuation made between 40 and hours made the meaning to appear to be 40 days, 24 hours a day. Isn't that amazing? So it was, it became like a major season in the church, right? So the importance of the passage, nevertheless, remains that since the time of our forefathers, which literally means those who learned from those who were part of the original 12 slash 144, that close of a connection to Christ himself, a 40-day period of Lenten preparation existed. However, the actual practices and duration of Lent were still not totally homogenous throughout the church. Okay, so Lent becomes more like regularized after the legalization of Christianity in AD 313. Of course, Council of Nicaea 325 and its canons actually noted that two synods should be held each year, one before the 40 days of Lent. St. Athanasius says that in his festal letters. He asked his congregation to make a 40-day fast prior to the more intense fasting of Holy Week. Um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, uh, 386, in his catechetical lectures, which are basically the vision for our current RCIA programs. That's kind of cool. Had 18 pre-baptismal instructions given to catechumenants during Lent. And St. Cyril of Alexandria, we talked about him uh, in 444, in his series of festal letters, also noted the practices and duration of Lent, emphasizing 40-day period of fasting. Finally, Pope St. Leo, who died in 461, 
He preached that the faithful must fulfill with their fasts the apostolic institution of the 40 days. Again, noting the apostolic origins of Lent specifically. Okay, so now one can safely conclude then that by the end of the fourth century, the 40 day period of Easter preparation known as Lent essentially existed and that prayer and fasting constituted its primary spiritual exercises. That is awesome. That is so awesome about church. That it is so deeply rooted in history. I love this. The earliest teachers and preachers of the church drawing from the original language of what it meant to prepare for a single day that was Easter recognize the need for this duration. Just, ah, uh, I love that. I love that. It's not some cheeky trend, right? We are deeply invested in kind of this amazing life-giving tradition. So, ah, uh, sell out to this. Okay, here we go. Of course... The number 40, right? Okay, it has a ton of spiritual significance, okay? So on Mount Sinai, preparing to receive the Ten Commandments, Moses stayed there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights without eating any food or drinking any water. See Exodus 34. Elijah walked 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of the Lord, Mount Horeb, another name for Sinai, 1 Kings 19. Most importantly, let's not forget, we just had these readings. Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert before he began his public ministry. Matthew 4, that's the gospel reading. For the first Sunday of Lent, right? Once the 40 days of Lent are established, the next major kind of development in this conversation basically concerns how much fasting was to be done. (laughs) Some people take this totally over the, the, take it too seriously. But in Jerusalem, for instance, people fasted for 40 days, Monday through Friday, but not on Saturday or Sunday, thereby making Lent last for eight weeks. So in Rome and in the West, people fasted for six weeks, Monday through Saturday, thereby making Lent last for six weeks. And eventually the practice prevailed of fasting for six days a week over the course of six weeks. And Ash Wednesday was instituted to bring the number of fast days before Easter by 40. Okay. So the rules of fasting varied, right? So first, some areas of the church abstained from all forms of meat and animal products, while others made exceptions for food like fish. For example, Pope St. Gregory, 604, writing to St. Augustine of Canterbury, different Augustine, issued the following rule. We abstain from flesh, meat, and from all things that come from flesh as milk, cheese, and eggs. Now, second, the general rule was for a person to have one meal a day in the evening or at about three o'clock. This is the origins of the fasting. Now, these these fasting rules obviously evolved. Okay, so eventually a smaller repast was allowed during the day to keep up one's strength for manual labor. Eating fish was allowed and later eating meat was also allowed through the week, except on Ash Wednesday and Friday. Uh, Dispensations were given for eating dairy products if a pious work was performed. And eventually this rule was totally relaxed. So. The abstinence from even dairy products led to the practice of blessing Easter eggs and eating pancakes on Shrove Tuesday, the day before Ash Wednesday. Dude, origins of Mardi Gras. Love it. Okay. Now, over the years, tons of modifications have been made to the Lenten observances. Okay. So you know that because you're a modern person. Now, making practices... Uh, they've become more simple. They've just become quite a bit more easy. So Ash Wednesday still marks the beginning of Lent, which lasts for 40 days, right? But not including Sundays. And some people don't realize that Sundays are supposed to not be a day of fast. It's still supposed to be a celebration. Remember, Jesus has risen. We're not praying to a dead Jesus. Even in the midst of Lent, the good news is Jesus has risen. Okay, we don't declare alleluia, but we still recognize his fullness in the precious body. Okay, The present fasting and abstinence laws are really simple. On Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, the faithful fast, having only one full meal a day and smaller snacks, sorry, 
to keep up a person's strength and abstain from meat. And on the other Fridays of Lent, the faithful abstain from meat. People are still encouraged to give something up for Lent as a sacrifice. Like an interesting note is that technically on Sundays and Sundays like St. Joseph's Day, March 19th, and the Annunciation, March 25th, one is exempt and can partake on whatever, whatever's been given up. Do that if you want to. I don't think it's a bad idea. I like to just buckle down, especially if I give up something like coffee. If I go back to coffee, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm going to give it up again. Okay, so... I was always taught, if you give something up for the Lord, tough it out. (laughs) Okay, right? Don't act like a Pharisee looking for a loophole. Okay? Moreover, an emphasis has got to be placed on performing good spiritual works. This is the part of Lent that's even more important is what are you doing during Lent? So, like attending Stations of the Cross, attending Mass, making a weekly holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament, taking time for personal prayer, Uh, spiritual reading, most especially uh, making good confession and receiving sacramental absolution. These are great things, simple, simple things that we can do during Lent. Do something spiritual to grow spiritually, okay? Grow self spiritually for Christ. Don't just give up chocolate, sweat it out and gripe and gorge on Sunday. That is not a spiritual act. That is not worthy of your time. Okay. The practices have evolved right over the centuries, but the focus remains the same. The goal of Lent, the kickoff of Ash Wednesday is for us to repent of sin, which literally means be emptied so that we may be filled by him and to renew our faith and to prepare to celebrate joyfully the mysteries of of salvation. St. John Paul II says we are an Easter people and hallelujah is our song. Friends, here's what that means. It means we are going to take these 40 days to walk in the desert with our Lord, to stand behind him while he defies temptation, to listen to self and the way that Christ informs us, to give up something so as to fill that time or the gap that that thing leaves with something else spiritual and designed to praise him. And that means buckle up. Okay. That means get tough. Let's go out there. Let's go out there in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and lock and load a renewed understanding of our relationship with Christ. That is what the lengthen, right? As we launch into spring, as the, the, the world literally tilts, the ground warms, the sky literally changes, new life emerges, keep our eyes on the prize. Steep ourselves in the journey. Let that be a, the, the center of our catechesis. Let it be an extension of all of our ministries. And then quite frankly, personally, let it be a place to grow. What are you doing during Lent to grow? Are you giving up two minutes? Give up five Are you rocking 10 minutes of prayer? Do 15. How are you learning? What podcasts are you listening to to learn more about the Lord? What are you reading? What silence are you inviting into your life to make it an important part of your day? It is about your relationship with Jesus Christ in the communion of saints, blessed by his mother in preparation for the resurrection. Friends, make this the best Lent Ever. Don't forget to visit renovopodcast.com for past episodes. Please subscribe to, review, and rate our podcast. We always appreciate your input. 
Your topic suggestions, questions, and or comments are always welcome at Doug at RenovoPodcast.com. Learn more about me at DougTook.com or on Twitter and Instagram at D-T-O-O-K-E and the number one. Always remember to engage the beautiful tradition of the faith and to live the daily conversion. Until next time, God bless. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.